Hi, I'm Jeff Miller. I'm Anthony Navarro, and welcome to Talk Out Loud, where we share the LGBTQIA narrative one story at a time. On this episode of Talk Out Loud, we're here with Jeffrey Masters. Jeffrey is the host and producer of the podcast LGBTQ and A. He speaks with some of the most interesting queer people in the world, including Roxanne Gay, Laverne Cox, and Pete Buttigieg. Jeffrey was raised in North Carolina, and being in a sheltered community, he grew to understand how important it is to have visibility for minority communities. After moving to Los Angeles, he discovered the art of podcasting. He was a pioneer in the industry, where with hard work and determination, he created a platform for queer people. Let's hear Jeffrey's story. Jeffrey, thank you for uh, joining us today. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited. It's Friday. (laughs) (laughs) It's always a good thing. (laughs) Any weekend plans? What do you got going on? I'm going to be working all weekend. It's not a fun (laughs) plan. (laughs) (laughs) What really is a weekend here, right? So what does work look like for you like right now? Has it changed with COVID? Is it, you know, have you pivoted as far as the way you would normally be working? Yeah. I mean, I started my podcast like five years ago, interviewing, you know, what I think are the most interesting queer people alive. And the biggest difference between my show and other shows was I did every single interview in person. And so for three years, that was like my one sticking point. I was like, it's just a massive stickler at. And when COVID happened, obviously, I don't need to tell you that we're not doing things in person anymore. But that kind of let me reframe what I wanted to do and to go after bigger people and more of the like older crowd, actually. Like our community elders, they're not focused in LA where I used to live or New York where I currently live. And so, like, for example, yesterday I got to talk to Miss Major Griffin Gracie, who I think is like the oldest Mm. and most celebrated trans elder in our community. And she's in Arkansas. So it's been a a big shift and change that I'm trying to, I think we're like taking advantage of really amazingly. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting how in some ways that this has given us permission to do things before that we necessarily didn't have access to. I kind of want to go back in time a little bit. You grew up in North Carolina, right? That is true. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Was it a small town, mid-sized town? Um, Greensboro, North Carolina is the third biggest city in North Carolina. (laughs) I think of it as like the perfect suburb. I think there's like 250,000 people or so. So it's not a small town. It's not a big city. I don't know what a big city is considered, but you know, it, it kind of felt like it had everything and didn't have too much of one thing, like too much farmland or too much like city skyscrapers, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes total sense. Was uh, What was culture like there for you? Any like sort of uh, spiritual rituals in your family or anything like that at all? The culture, just me and like being gay and like whatever I want. No. Um, (laughs) I think the culture is interesting because North Carolina is technically the Bible Belt, but my family is Jewish. My mom is Jewish. My dad's Catholic. So I feel like I was given the great opportunity to like sample both religions and make Mm -hmm. a choice at like what fit me the best. And I mean, I'm, I'm also like editorializing looking back, right? We celebrated Easter, Christmas, Passover, Rosh Hashanah, but I just always gravitated towards the Judaism. So it wasn't like a, like, 
hey, young boy, like choose religion. It was like, oh, I really, I love Judaism and I love Jewish people and I love our traditions. So, so that like really stood out being in North Carolina as like, you know, one of two Jewish families growing up for sure. <laughs> it sounds like you almost uh, kind of have like a little bit of an a la carte experience of things that kind of resonated with yourself that were presented. You got to choose and you kind of went with what felt right with your own soul or, or, or would you say that or no? I think I would say that. I always hate talking to people and myself doing this when like you connect dots that don't exist throughout like childhood. So mm-hmm. I think like a part of me would love to say like I grew up and there wasn't a correct religion and I'd love to like relate that to queerness and you know there's not like a correct way to like love somebody. I don't know that that is actually accurate even though one day I might write that in a book. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that they it definitely like influenced me did the fact that it like made me like comfortable with queerness like absolutely not because this is still the south mm. and it was like the 90s mm. so today do you identify with either being catholic or jewish yeah i am jewish for sure yeah and i i feel like um I I, <laughs> I feel like one of those people who I'm laughing because it sounds like so cliche, but um, I always like make fun of my friends who like adopt dogs and they're like, really, they adopted me. But like, that's kind of how I feel about Judaism, <laughs> that like, it wasn't a choice I made. It was just like revealing an aspect of myself. You know, anytime mm. I'm around Jewish people, like I just have like the best time and I feel like I can like spot the Jew in the crowd and like always I can make conversation with them. So yeah, uh, Judaism and those like traditions, it's like a important aspect to me that I would not have thought of growing up. Growing up, did you have a, when did it like, was there a light bulb that went on for yourself where you're like, where you heard about gay people and you're like, oh, what they're talking about that that's, that's me. Was there, was there any sort of like self-realization at all? No. In the exact way that I gravitated towards Judaism, mm-hmm. I also saw queer people out in the world and I like went the opposite direction. Mm. You know, I, um, at the time, I think all the time about Adam Lambert being on American Idol, how looking back, he was so obviously queer. But back then, it was kind of like a wink and a nod and it was whispered and there was no confirmation. Now it's like, right. well, duh, he had great hair, he's gay. Um, but like, you know, <laughs> I think growing up too, like there was whispers, but there was no confirmation anywhere. And so in high school, there was now looking back, obviously, you know, like four or five queer people. But back then, you that wasn't a cool thing to be. Like, and if you were to like befriend another gay person, that would kind of like out you in a way, right? Yeah. So you could just kind of steer clear of that. And so I I was on swim team for four years, and our swim team coach was this you know, butcher woman who was roommates with the French teacher. And we always wondered, like, were they dating? And it's like, of course they were. And I even know now, like, they got married. But back then, it was like, I wonder if they're queer. And like, this is somebody I saw every single day after school for swim practice. And it, it never, we never brought it up. There was never like, um, and that's what I, I missed actually in my life. I wish I had like a mentor figure that hadn't outed me or said, are you gay? Cause I would have said, no, get the F away from me. But I wish somebody mm-hmm. had been like, Hey, you're special or Hey, you're different. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. you know, there's many yeah. different ways to do something even broadly. I never had anyone do that. And I kind of, I, I feel like I missed that actually. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It's, it's interesting when you, you said that it's because you think about like, I mean, this is a bad comparison, but like, 
I've had some friends that have become doctors and they do rotations their first year. And you find out like you get to try a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And you find out like, oh, like my personality type is good for uh, anesthesiologist or pediatrician. And I look back upon that because I had the same thing. Like I was a lifeguard and the guy that was the head of the swim team, he actually was not became non, non-binary or transitioned or they transitioned. And I remember when they changed their name to Ashton from Chad. And, and I was like, I was so curious, but yet I had to keep the wall up because I was like, they can't like know that I may have some, there might be a connection here. Like I didn't get to naturally gravitate towards my people, kind of like mm-hmm. what you're talking about. And then, you know, help each other get, get develop into who we were becoming, which I think that a lot more people today are able to do that at a younger age. But I also know like from recently driving from Chicago out to LA a couple like last month and stopping in smaller towns and just realizing that it is still that way in some places today still, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. I mean, when I moved from LA to New York City last year, I, I drove to North Carolina and I sold my car there. But driving LA, North Carolina across the country, I... Was I was stopped in some small town for a gas station, and I had like gray nail polish on my nails, and I was wearing my um, AIDS life cycle sweatshirt, mm-hmm. and across the back it just says AIDS, and you know we don't think anything about that. But then I was like, oh my god, I actually feel like unsafe wearing my mm-hmm. AIDS life cycle sweatshirt and with my mm-hmm. nail polish, and, mm-hmm. it, and it shocked me just because you know we live in major metropolitan cities, and I don't ever think or like clock myself or overthink that. So it's like such an interesting, you know, juxtaposition just to travel around in our country and see how like greatly different it means to be like gay and how that like changes even in yourself and how like solidly comfortable we might be. Yeah. I think, you know, part of that goes into representation, right? So representation in small towns, it's, you know, a smaller population, I guess the less chance of there being a larger, you know, LGBTQ population in that town. I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on this, because you talk to a lot of people uh, who are in the community and where do you think like today, like obviously we look back at like your childhood, we could, we could see where the lack of representation was, but today where, where do you think we're lacking in representation or visibility for the community? I I think that we're lacking variety. I think like Hollywood's gone in waves where like we only had the, um, the Jack from Will and Grace, like this hyper femme Mm -hmm. best friend who's like, totally desexualized we then saw like you know 10 jacks across tv and then we went the exact opposite direction where they were gay but they kind of were like straight presenting and we were like that is such a great like uh like step up for a presentation and so i think we're now entering the place in terms of like gay men where we're seeing a great variety across tv and i would love to see that more in terms of the other letters of the community as well you know, bi people are the greatest percentage of LGBTQ people, but it still tends to be like one of the smallest when we see on screen represented. And so I would love to see just more of the community. I think there was one ace character across all TV. There was only three last year, only three HIV positive characters on TV, and they were all in the same TV show. They were all on Pose. And so that kind of is the larger issue now too, where we're all watching shows at a smaller audience so even if there is groundbreaking tv what i wonder all the time is like is it going to be is it going to break through are we ever going to have another ellen moment where ellen comes out and everybody knows and has that cultural reference as opposed to i i'm obsessed with veneno on hbo max the greatest trans representation i've ever seen on tv Mm. and also it's like so exciting because it is a TV show based on the life of a real trans person. 
that mm. just like historically has never happened. But I bring that up because like how many people watch HBO Max and I've ever like heard of that show? I think it's like just right. the big cities. I, and it goes back to your point is like, it's great that we have these shows that are available more for people who want to tune into that. But it's like, you need, you still need like those queer characters in those primetime moments where the people in those smaller towns that we've all, you know, sort of, you know, visited or whatnot, like Jeff, Jeff was talking about when we drove, you know, cross country again, it's like stopping in those small towns. It's, it's, it's eye opening. It's, it's like, oh my gosh, we're like, we are going back in time. And it's not necessarily those people that are living in those towns. It's not their fault. It's just that the, their, there isn't the cultural exposure that they're getting and the only exposure that they're going to have is through the, you know media or tv so it's uh it's so important that we can even though we maybe don't look at network television or primetime television as like where we're going to go and watch television that's really where it's more important in my opinion that we get those queer characters because then it gets them in front of you know those those bigger audiences going back to what you said earlier Adam Lambert i mean th- having those kind of people on those shows that's really what I think will continue to help you know break through the barriers for people to understand and know who queer people are. As we're talking about this uh, visibility and representation, you are in your fi- is it fifth season for LGBTQ&A? You know, I've, seasons are arbitrary and I've never labeled them. However, this is our fifth year. Fifth year, okay. So in your fifth year, yeah. um, which you've got an interview I listened to the other day with uh, Mark Siegel that recently came out. And what stuck out to me was, not to give away the whole interview because I want people to listen to it, um, no, he, snuck, he snuck on the set of Walter Cronkite's evening news, right? And he talked about how at that point that, you know, we only had like three broadcast major networks, right? And so the viewership on that evening was like 60, like the same it is for a Super Bowl every year. And he said that he talks about that after that happened, 60 million people had now seen a gay man hmm. and how groundbreaking that was then. And I think about like some of these, like myself, when I when I start to even like if I'm in a smaller town, if I start to code switch or something like that, I am denying these people of having a positive experience with an out gay man. So I think there's also, I mean, obviously you have, you have to think about safety and stuff like that. But I know that part of what I'm telling myself here is that that my my I'm less likely to stumble on my words now with some of my trans friends because I've had conversations with them and I've learned and it's, it's an evolving process with some of my friends that are non-binary and I'm going to make mistakes. But allowing that it would be a safe place to have those conversations for for connection. So I think that that uh, you know that visit you know he talks about visibility really specifically. And um, now that there is so much more, we, we, there's so much more vehicles for for visibility now that you're not necessarily like you said earlier with HBO Max, we're not guaranteed that's going to be seen by the widespread population on that. Or maybe they wouldn't know what that show yeah. is necessarily to to dive into it. I think so. Um, and also like you know, 50 or 60 million people were watching Walter Cronkite in the Mm seventies. However, there was also just like less options for entertainment in the whole. So like not only are the news networks competing as news networks, they're also competing against the HBO Maxes and Netflixes and also like the TikToks. But Mm -hmm. regarding your point about visibility in person, I think all the time about that because I left the South to live in like a safer place, right? To be around other gay people because that was so important to me to have that culture. And I, and I really, I, I, I love that I did that. However, I also think that like 
all the gay people cannot move from the South because like we need the visibility there. And so like, I'm not willing to do that, but I, I hate to have like a city centered podcast, which is why I'm so happy to be doing it now over like zoom, because when I was only getting New York, it tended to be like, I moved to New York and it saved my life. And I hate mm. like sending the message that you can't be queer and live in a small town because clearly you can. I just personally don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, for us, uh, for Jeff and I too, it's been important for us to be in sort of a major metropolitan area. And part of it is, is, you know, to be with our people. Knowing other, you know, friends of ours who live in those smaller towns across the country, I think what is what we're seeing now is like they're now they're getting married now they're having kids and now within those small towns they are becoming those examples of what it looks like to be you know two dads raising you know their kids or two moms raising their kids and i would hope that you know maybe there might be a time where we don't feel the need that we would have to leave our smaller towns or our hometowns to flood the cities to kind of come to these safer places where it may just be a place where we feel comfortable, you know, staying staying put. I agree completely. And I have to wonder if COVID is going to speed that up. Mm-hmm. With everybody moving to the suburb, then yeah. I think it's easier to move from the suburb to like even more suburb in the South. <laughs> so I just like, I'm going to be fascinated with like how all of this just changes. Yeah. So Jeffrey, I'm just curious, you, you left your hometown and you headed off to college. Where did you, where did you end up at? I went to Elon university also in North Carolina. And what did you set off with a desire to study, you know, entertainment, uh, acting, anything like that? Yeah. So I was an acting major, which I did for like the four years. I mean, I, three and a half, if I can brag. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I was an acting major, and I think all the time about what I learned there, because it's not like I'm not acting anymore and I'm just doing a complete other thing. But like the lessons I learned there, as a, like in terms of like learning how to like be given a note of a criticism and absorbing it, um, mm-hmm. as I now do on air hosting reporting, occasionally I'll have a co-host, and you know they're like, "Hey Jeff, you talk too fast." Uh, slow it down. And I say, okay, thank you. And they tell my co-host, hey, um, you have this weird pause. Don't do that. And then I see this person break down because they're not used to being told criticism. And to me, it's like, I don't want to do a good job. I want to do like a fucking great job. It's like, give Mm -hmm. me the notes you want. But for other people, like they're not used to that. And I really relate that back to acting because you do a scene in class, they give you notes, you do it again. And mm-hmm. I, th- right. I think all the time about like, like certain lessons like that, that I have learned. And, um, yeah. And I re- really, related to now my like hosting and like podcasting for sure. I'm curious. That's a really good lesson right there. I've never thought about that way. Has that also helped you with other ways and critiques in life and change in your own personal life? Yeah. I think that for better or worse, you're used to rejection. Mm-hmm. You know, I like how many auditions that I go on when I moved to LA and I, you know, booked, I don't know, one out of every 90, let's say. So like, I am now in that, I don't get beat up when I am, I've been up for a lot of really, really big jobs at dream companies and I've not got them. And to me, like, that's life. Like, it's not like demoralizing. Um, so I think like, it's really helped my like work ethic in that sense. Yeah. I think that like the audition process also, like you walk into a room and you do your scene and you leave. But when you walk in the room, you need them to like you. And so you smile, you say, how are mm. you? And you make chit chat. 
it really helped those people skills because I know so many people who have no idea how they come across. You know, I'm like, mm. I tell a friend, like, you were so rude to that waiter. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I just asked for like a drink. And I'm like, well, no, that's not what happened. You were an asshole. <laughs> and th- so the fact I think that I know how I come across is like from that training, but also now five years into my podcast and other podcasts before that, I've listened to hours and hours of myself have conversations. And I think that is so unique in life, just in general. Mm. I mean, it wasn't even possible like 20 years ago. But the fact that I've Mm. heard myself have hour-long conversations, I hear when I sound bored out of my mind, even though I'm not bored. I hear when I sound like Mm. I, just other things like that, that I really like pick up on. So I think it like fine tuned my ear for that kind of thing. That's interesting. That inflection there that you've, you've caught on to. I think about today with, with all like the texting that we do, like so much back texting. And there's sometimes I'm like, you know what? I pick up a phone because a text message, there's no inflection at all. Right. Like that, that converse, like if I'm, ordering something, you know, I really have to make sure that it comes across. I really appreciate how you're helping me today or, or what you did for me or, or, you know, your time that you, you spent some, and I think we could all benefit from some of the things you're talking about, actually, you know, from those experiences for sure. Well, I think that like what you said about texting, like you're re-traumatizing me a bit, so it's okay. But like, I've dated so many guys where I, they're sending me like the weirdest texts and I just call them. And we work it out and it's fine. And then later I'm like, hey, like what was going on? I, I love like a, a conversation just like prior to things. I think that I'm actually like more, I've trained myself to be okay with uncomfortable conversations in the way that people aren't. So I'm like, why did you, when I said, want to meet up tonight and you sent me back, yes. And I said, okay, are you free? Like um, after six, I could probably do like around then. And you just said, yes. And then I was like, well, where, uh, things like that, like one word answers. And then they're like, well, I was saying yes. And it's like, yeah, but that's not how that comes across. You know, we've gone out one or two times, <laughs> like things like that. Or, and then I also kind of expand it. I'm thinking of one guy in particular, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> I expand it. And I say, I'm also curious, like, is this how you text all of your friends? Or is it just like men who like want to get in your pants? Wait, what? Um, and like this one guy was like, no, all my friends think it's a problem. And I'm mm. like, well, if a guy that you're interested in and every single person in your life is identifying this as like a possible frustration, like, would you not want to maybe think about possibly changing it? But like people just have no right. desire mm. to change. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely an opportunity to take that to heart. And I think that it's like, okay, well then if this person, it's, it's almost like I would think a bit of a red flag to be like, okay, well, if this is somebody who I may be looking to, to go out with more than once or twice, then how would there be a partnership here that would really be a collaboration, if any means, you know? Okay, well, you're a married man. For me, I'm single and I have like six months left at this body fat percentage. And so like red <laughs> flags need to be like a rad, like a, the car size flag for me to say no. I just think about like before, like because before I would be like in a bar and I would just be like, like spin the tail on the donkey, like whatever, like, you know, like I would just, whoever would, would just acknowledge me. I was like, okay, yeah, like, let's like, you know, I'd start thinking about a white picket fence and all that stuff. And, um, yeah. So Anthony just acknowledged you and that was enough. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> sort of. <laughs> That's kind of what happened. Um, so, but going back to the, you know, texting and in everything, I just think about communication in general, you know, today. And I, I remember, you know, when I first started my career in 
the event planning world, I was working at a hotel and we didn't even have email. So we were, when people were calling to book parties and events, they, I mean, they were literally calling us and I was faxing menus to people. I mean, because that's just how we were. And, uh, you know, watching sort of the evolution of communication and now, uh, like, Text, just with text messaging, the difference in how you know you construct an email, the first email, and then you could almost like look in within a chain of emails with the same person, sort of the deconstruction of the conversation, how it just gets looser and looser where it becomes you know shorter sentences. And I feel like you know for me always, I'm always I always try to be detailed. My emails are probably too long. There's probably too much information in there, but at least I'm showing the person who I'm communicating with the that I've thought through things that there is some level of respect to them. And then also if they say, well, you never told me that I could always go back and say, well, no, it's really in the email. I sent it to you. You maybe just didn't read it. So there I'm wondering, you know, with COVID and sort of how things have shifted. I'm just wondering if that's going to make our communication process worse or if it's maybe going to improve it a little bit more. And the only reason why I say that is I've noticed more people want to do whether they're Zoom calls or FaceTime calls when you have meetings instead of conference calls. Because I, I've i been working remote for many, many years. You know, We have an office, but a lot of times I work from home and all that stuff. And it's always just, if we have to get on the phone with someone, we get on the phone. But now there seems to be this people wanting to reconnect to be able to see one another when they're having meetings. So I'm I'm curious to see sort of how the cards fall when this is all over. If people, maybe some of that like disconnection is going to change. I agree. I mean, everyone makes jokes about like this meeting could have been an email. And mm-hmm. now it's like this Zoom call could have been a phone call, could have been like a single Slack notification. Yeah, I agree. I also don't know how to, know how to factor into it that like a lot of people are sitting at home alone and like are desperate for communication. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So Jeff, I'm just, so I'm just thinking back. I mean, I know what you do now and what you've been doing and, and you do such a great job at it and know myself and a lot of other people have benefited from the work you've done. But what I'm curious is, is that how did the kid who was shy to be around, you know, to letting his truth show to the coach get into queer media? You know, a lot of force. Um, <laughs> um, that, so I found early into my career in Hollywood, I was living in LA, and I found like hosting and reporting, and I thought it was like so fun, and it really engaged. It helped me to like be the cool, fun version of myself I wanted to be, you know, because it just demands that for on camera. And so I found it terribly exciting to be this like awesome version of myself. And then early on in my like hosting career, I found out that every young person my age, I was probably in my like early to mid twenties is doing red carpets. And mm-hmm. I think that they're terribly boring because you're just like shouting at celebrities, like the back of their heads. And then the only person that stops to talk to you is like the assistant video editor. And I was like, <laughs> what am I doing here? I just don't get excited by being like that proximity to celebrity, which is probably why I now like can do what I do. But I very quickly found long form interviews and I like loved that. And I was interviewing authors and I thought it was like the coolest thing ever that this woman wrote The Giver. And then now I get to talk to her mm-hmm. for 45 minutes, you know, or I also uh, like booked this young writer who had this cool web series. Her name was Issa Rae, you know, and then she like went on to do Insecure. So things like that I thought were the coolest. And then Along the way, 
I was like found, you know, I found long form interview was like my thing. And I was looking around for like a queer interview podcast because I kind of got in the podcast space early. And there wasn't one that I like was jiving with. Like there's always been gay podcasts. I don't want to like erase that, but there wasn't any at like a, at a big level. There was none at like a mainstream company. And I just was like, you know what? If I don't do this, someone else is going to. So like, might as well be me. Let me jump in. And at this point, I launched a podcast and I was telling people like what a podcast was. I was telling them how to download it. Like industry standards were to have on your website what a podcast was and how to download and listen to it. There's a lot of steps. You guys know this. (laughs) And so I'm like a podcast daddy is what I'm saying. But really early on, I... uh, (laughs) Um, I is that on a t-shirt that, somewhere? <laughs> yeah, right. I always find those in, at noon. Um, yeah, I, I, I loved interviews, and I start, I started studying mm. them. Uh, I studied the greats. I also am a volunteer of the Trevor Project. I've done that for like seven years, and like you know, answering mm. calls on a suicide hotline. You are trying to navigate a conversation and like seek out information and control conversation for safety without making it feel like you're controlling conversation. And so like that was really some of the best mm. training I ever did for my interviewing. Because in an interview, you're trying to like navigate and control it without making it seem like I'm like forcing an interview to be something it doesn't want to be. Yeah. So like I'm a terribly prepared interviewer, but if you have something more interesting to say, we're gonna go in that direction for sure. Right. Yeah. And so to answer your question about how to get to career media, the short version is I launched my podcast and because it's a, it was a different time in the market, I was able to grow a following really quickly. Um, nowadays, you can't launch a podcast and just grow a following like on accident. You have to have an, an audience to leverage, things like that. And then I strategically created a show that would have um, partnership capabilities. It wasn't like, hey, tune in every week to hear Jeffrey Masters speak about his fascinating life. You know, that's not going to build an audience. It was like documenting queer history. And so I had some partnerships along the way. And then I brought it over to the Advocate magazine, which I've been talking to the people there for a while about things. You really nowadays can't bring a podcast over to a a magazine unless you want to give up all control over it or they just, they would rather launch their own, but it's a different time in the market. Also, you know, we talked about like, you can live anywhere as a queer person and work anywhere now. That's true. But I only got this job as an advocate because I had had connections in the queer world, right? I live in LA and I just got to know people and I got to know the right people, not maliciously, just that's what happens when you like are making new friends. And so, you know, at one point they were like, Hey, does anyone know Jeffrey Masters? And everyone said, yeah, of course at the company. Does anyone like his podcast? Yeah, it's amazing. Mm, Awesome. So they just hired me. They didn't post the job. You know, they didn't go through all that stuff. I I mean, it was a lot harder and longer process than that, but really it's like I created something good and they wanted to like put their name on it. And also, Jeffrey, you partner with Glad as well, too. Is that correct? Yes. So technically, we are produced by the Advocate magazine in partnership with Glad. So we're in partnership with them. (laughs) So Glad has a history. Glad's been around. can't quote me on how, how long it's actually been around. I know it, 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 some of the people that actually uh, were involved in back in Stonewall then splintered off and, and all these wonderful things started. And that was, was part of that. GLAD specifically, they really focus on, on representation in media, right? Is, is that what their yes. purpose is? Can you talk about how important that, that has been with the work you've been, been doing and some of the people you've spoken to over the years? 
Yeah, I think that representation is easy to like dismiss as, yeah, it's important, whatever. But like looking at like the stats, one that we talk about all the time is that 84% of the population doesn't know a trans person personally, or they don't know that they know a trans person, right? And so if 84% of people don't know a trans person, they're learning everything about trans people from TV, from film. And that is why things like that are so important. Um, it goes back to what we were saying about HIV too. There's no one on TV right now who's HIV positive. And so like, that literally leads to like an increased stigma. And so I think the GLAD does like some amazing work. Also, they've created um, you know, an awards to award people. Everyone loves an awards. You know, the, um, the GLAD awards are something that GLAD made up. And now it's mm-hmm. like an industry standard that like TV networks want GLAD awards, which is brilliant in terms of mm-hmm. business. But also they rate and review every single network based on every single show they put out. And so they have the stats of like the percentage of queer characters on TV, the percentage of queer characters on your specific network and things like that. And then they meet with the network heads and they say, you're failing. You only have five gay characters. They're all gay white men. What are you doing? How are you going to improve? And then next year they meet again. Doing, doing those behind the scenes things, I think has, I mean, just transformed television there are certain networks and agencies that have made the commitment to glad that 20 percent of like their characters will be queer 20 percent might be a number i'm making up but it's a percentage that is committed to being queer trans is i think just a huge step forward for the community Uh, just switching gears, uh, kind of, I, I really am interested to sort of learn a little bit more on, you know, going back to like the groundwork that you had to lay in order for the show to become so successful. There was a quote by the advocate that said, the overused term overnight success is supremely apt in the case of Jeffrey Masters. So I, I know, you know, for myself, building a business over, you know, almost 15 years and being able to do that. And obviously with the show that we have now, you know, overnight success seems like like sort of a pipe dream, right? So was was it overnight success for you? Or can you talk a little bit about the process of you building the show and what that was like? Absolutely. I would want more than anything to be an overnight success. That's not my story. <laughs> but... Yeah, when I was crafting the show, I knew that many of the other queer interview shows were like, hey, we interview LGBTQ people, and then they have a trans person every six months, things like that. If that's too shady, let me know. So I knew right (laughs) out the gate, like what was going to be expected of my LGBTQ show. And so I had this great name that I was Googling, LGBTQ&A with an ampersand, and I could not believe that no one else had thought of it. (laughs) (laughs) That shows you like how underserved queer media is. That this was like the easiest thing that I just assumed like was going to be anywhere, but whatever. But going back to the guest list, I knew right away that people were going to expect just me to be interviewing only gay white men. And so I I, um, specifically stopped the early guests with different, identities and different Mm. professions you know when we say diversity we often talk about like black and white also there's other races but there's also diversity in terms of age and profession Mm. and like lived experience and so i wanted to cover all of that and then i was doing other podcasts at a studio and ross matthews from drag race and hello ross was recording at his at there as well and you know we'd say hi in the hallway and then i started going in 
about like four hours early to sit in the lobby and like do work on my computer so that I could have that FaceTime with him to say, Hey, how are you? How's Palm Springs your weekend? Oh my God, two cans. We love karaoke, things like that. And then two <laughs> months later, I was like, Hey Ross, making it easy for him. Hey Ross, do you mind staying after one day recording your podcast for just like 30 minutes and be on my show? It's a new show. It really would benefit from your celebrity you know, just laying it out there. And because I made it easy for him, he doesn't need to like drive somewhere else. He said, yeah, why don't we do it next week? And so like mm -hmm. doing things like that really let the audience know right out the gate that I'm going to be having celebrity talent, that I'm able to book those people. And also I am a really, I didn't know this, I'm a fantastic talent booker. <laughs> so out of 200 <laughs> people on my podcast I've uh, interviewed, I've booked 197 of them. Before that, I was booking all these wow. authors. So I learned really how to write a nice tight email. And then once you get your first celebrity, it's like, hey, Ross Matthews is on the show. Also, this amazing author's on the show. Like, we'd love to have you. Da -da -da. Uh, BuzzFeed wrote an article about like nine or 12 months into my podcast. And it was the like top 27 podcasts to listen to. And by no design, but just like the chance of like lists being good, um, like for SEO and for like readability, the number two slot, number two, LGBTQ and A. And so I was able to say like, hey, BuzzFeed ranked us at the number two podcast to listen to for 2017, <laughs> not to the time. So things like that along the way, you know, let people know like this is what's going on. Yeah. Also, um, I... I, I, I'm, I go back to like how I studied being an interviewer. I, I wanted these to be something that were evergreen. I didn't mm -hmm. want it to be like, how was your week? What TV show are you watching right now? Because then you could, anyone can ask those questions, but also like, mm -hmm. that's not going to hold up. And I've, I've always been proud of my interviews. That being said, I listen to the early ones now and like, I'm never going to re-release them because <laughs> I've improved <laughs> since then. And I'm like, oh, I do a lot of nervous laughter, but things like that, I... I think I hit people ahead of time with good interviews, but also like I can't underestimate the fact that I just like filled a hole in the market. You mm -hmm. know, yeah. if we want to make like a sick joke about filling the hole, you can, but you guys are sickos. Um, no, there was a hole and I filled it. And so that is also why I was able to get seen really early. But then yeah. with that filling all in the metaphor there, I was like, okay, now I have eyes on me. I want it to be a good product as well. Right. Okay. And I think, as you guys know, like interviews can be hit or miss, and that has nothing to do with what you guys do ahead of time. It's always in our human body, ahead, like working there. And so sometimes, like I do a interview that I think is like purely mediocre, and it ruins my entire week. And other times, I do a great interview, and it makes my day for like three hours. And so it's you know it always is like outweighs itself. Yeah, I did a lot of early tricks like that, asking friends who are friends with um, celebrity to to come on the podcast. And I think like celebrity is important because like I at the time could not command a following, but they could. You know, listening to sort of everything that you just said. So there's a couple takeaways that I have. One of them is, you know, reiterating to the audience and everyone listening the importance of what it is to foster relationships. So thinking about like what like two things that you said, right? So this whole situation with Ross. So you going in early, laying the groundwork. It wasn't like you bumped into him like one day and was like, oh my gosh, you're Ross Matthews 
want to be on my podcast? It was like you yeah. laid that groundwork to really foster that relationship to make him feel comfortable to be able to come on to the show. And also, you know, all of the other stuff that you did to just make it easy for him. I think, you know, going back to like, you know, texting and, you know, sort of short form communication now, there tends to be this lack of people wanting to really have sort of those more like interpersonal relationships. A, a friend of mine who is a, a in banking, total different, you know, profession and field, you know, we were talking sort of during this COVID time where she every week is traveling to see her clients. She does uh, corporate banking. So she is, you know, uh, in meetings with them, having dinners with them and all this stuff. And she said, you know, at some point in COVID, things loosened up where she was able to make that trip and go and actually be with one of her clients after, you know, being remote for like six months. And she just said, you know, there's something about when I'm at a dinner and I'm just getting up from the table and putting my coat on or, you know, walking away where I could have that quick side conversation with that person. I can't build that strong of a relationship with someone in this virtual space. So I think that that's interesting. And then the other thing with relationships is going back to you with this whole process with the advocate where it was like you are, you had your friends who happened to be, already in those rooms and it wasn't like you asked anybody to say hey i want you know i i want this job it's just like no, having those relationships and people being able to vouch for you is is key and i think about that for you know, people who are maybe in, you know, own their own businesses, like let's say someone who owns like a shop, it's like being involved in the work, doing your work, you know, um, and doing it really well, making your customers happy and having them sort of go out in the world and be your own advocate to be able to, you know, say, oh, you need to go see Susie and shop at, you know, this shop. Yeah. I mean, it freaks me out for like young people now who are starting their careers who are not making connections with their coworkers like while getting coffee right my first job was in media at pop sugar the website hmm. and like i think of it as like my like master's degree in like digital media i yeah. learned just you know how to like to form a youtube channel and grow it i also learned that i didn't want to be a youtuber so i didn't <laughs> even, like waste time doing that but i made so many great connections there that still i mean i still text people today asking for help like hey you now yeah. work at google can you connect me with that but like the part of the advocate story that I don't talk about a lot is that at the time it was Zach Stafford, who's a good friend of mine now, and we knew each other socially. And I would we'd I'd email him or we'd have a meeting in person, have a great meeting, and then I'd see him out of the bar. Mm. You know, we had so many mutual friends yeah. that anytime I followed up with him on email and he didn't respond, I would then see him like the next weekend at a bar or at someone's birthday party or this and that. And we'd chat and we'd chat about everything except for my podcast and him not emailing back. And then the next Monday, he'd email me back. Yeah. And then the weekend before I signed my contract, um, I hadn't heard from him in like two weeks and I was in San Diego for my friend's bachelor party. And what do you know? He's there at Rich's, this gay bar in San Diego, Zach. So he spent like that night with us at the bar, to be clear, just at the bar some of the night. Um, and then the <laughs> next morning, <laughs> uh, but to wrap up that story in San Diego, I see Zach there. And then the next day, he was leaving before my friend I drove down with and I drove back with him and we had this mm. two hours in a car to talk. And then like that sealed the deal. 
It's like these things you cannot plan. And you, I could not have been in Greensboro, North Carolina and like locked down this gig. No. And I think that that's sort of the, the serendipity of a lot of these kinds of things. It's like you, you almost have to just put yourself sort of in the trenches, right? Ingrain yourself in the work and really just focus on whatever the next right thing to do is that's right in front of you. I think back to, you know, myself growing, you know, an event planning company. It was like, there was no strategy. There was no business plan. There was no nothing. It was just kind of like, I don't know, we're just going to kind of figure this out. And as things evolved, it was like, do I go left or do I go right? And I think, you know, sometimes, you know, people see this like beautiful, like end product that you have this like, you know, for you, you know, you have this, you know, great show with, you know, these great guests. And it's like, people just don't understand all of the time and energy and effort that it, that went into building the, the framework or this, you know, the foundation for this to be able to thrive on. It's, I, I think one of the other things that I heard, you know, you say is that you've asked for things, you know, and I think that so many times today, people become afraid of asking for help, asking for, you know, to asking someone to be on the show, asking for anything. I had maybe about 10 years ago, I was working with a business coach and it was the one thing where she said it to me and I and it never dawned on me that I could just ask someone whether it was for help, whether it was for a referral, whether it was for a lead, whether it was for an introduction to someone. And I would say 99.9% of the time, people would say yes. It was a very small percentage of time where I maybe didn't hear back from someone or it was a no, but it was like, okay, just move on and find somebody else who will help you get connected or help you get where you need. And then it's always then, what am I going to do for those people? Again, going back to relationships. Yeah. And also, if you can't do anything for them now, just saying thank you. Yes. I have a large, uh, let's say, Rolodex of publicists or connections for my podcast. And people reach out all the time asking for someone's email or their their whatever. And I, or uh, or even like jobs or to be on the podcast. And um, 50% of people say thank you. But I think that that is a massive number that doesn't say thank you. Somebody emailed me like three weeks ago saying, Oh, I um I'll say I'll just say exactly what it is. I don't know why I'm being there in the bush. I so I work with Pride Media, it's the advocate and out magazine, and that the out magazine does the out one hundred every year. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote like a big bunch of those. That's not true. I wrote a small bunch of those <laughs> to help out because there's you know hundred to write. And one of the women, Shakina Nafak, this amazing actress, she sent me an email being like, Hey, thanks so much for including me and like writing such a nice um article. Mm-hmm. Period. One sentence, and I was like, oh my God, Shakina Nafak is the nicest woman I've ever met in my entire life. Yeah. It was a one-sentence email saying yeah. thank you. It's like all I'm asking for when I help somebody or connect somebody for a job or put in a good word is, hey, thank you so much. It doesn't need to be more than that, but nobody says thank you, and then that ruins it for everybody else. <laughs> Because it doesn't want to make yeah. you help anybody. Yeah. Well, right. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's just it's manners, right? It's just yeah. common yeah. courtesy and manners. Oh, like, yeah, that's, manners. I, and I, you know, not to be you know beat down the bush or whatever, but it's like it goes back to our communication patterns. It's like these quick one-liners or these you know these quick text messages. It's like we just sometimes forget that a, a little thank you goes such a long way. A couple of weeks ago, I was on someone's podcast and, as a guest. 
And I got a handwritten thank you note for being on the show. And it was just like, this, this is like, this is something that doesn't happen very often anymore. I mean, I, and I understand people don't do that, but the ability, the thought that goes into that, like anytime that that person will ask me for anything, I am going to bend over backwards and say, yes, I will rearrange my schedule to help you or be on your show again or whatever it is that you need. Absolutely. I, I also just want to go back to what you were saying about asking for things. I mm. I am like genetically programmed to like not ask for things, right? Mm. Be it help or a favor, anything. Mm. And yet the largest pattern that I see in people that have the careers I want or just like the, the like notoriety that I want is mm. they ask for things. Yeah. And so that is actually the thing that I'm trying to internalize the most this year is ask people for favors, ask them to do massive things. And if they say no, like you say back to them, no worries. I really appreciate you. You know, yeah, yeah it, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, it is. And you know, I think the other, the, the flip side of that always is, is then, you know, if I ask people for whatever it is I'm looking for, I am always then very reciprocal. Like I want to reciprocate that process. There, you know, there's like a saying, a giver's gain. So the idea of me being able to help you will then help me somehow later on down the line. I remember a long time ago there was a, a, a networking group that I was a part of, and the whole concept was we would meet once a week, and everybody through their networking, you know, over the week, everyone would you you were you were supposed to bring, you know, a lead or like a potential like uh, client, you know, for someone in the group. So there was like, you know, someone who was in printing, someone who was maybe an attorney, someone who was, uh, you know, whatever, different, different, one, per, one professional group per person in the group. And the whole idea was you, you may not get a lead every week, but if I can help you, then I become top of mind to that person to be able to help me when maybe they're interacting with someone who is looking for a florist or looking for any other kind of service. So there is this, there's almost like an art to it and like this beautiful thing that happens when you start doing that where it just is, you become a source for people and then people then tend not to say no when you go back and you ask them for help or for for something that you, you're trying to, to get to. I also think like it's really important that people make sure what they're asking for is like realistic. Yes. You know, being in Hollywood, we all have like high powered friends mm -hmm. and you know, I feel like, well, like one timing, don't ask somebody for a favor when they like get promoted to their brand new job. But mm -hmm. I remember last year I had a friend who was like doing like, like TV show development for Apple, which was like a massive job. And I had a friend text me and be like, Hey, I saw that you're friends with this person. Can you give her my script? And I was like, I don't think I can. <laughs> Yeah. Like that's like, that's a favor or like an ask that like makes me uncomfortable that then makes me ask for a favor from the friend. So it's like yeah. making sure like your asks are like feasible. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Or it, like a br bridging them. Right. So like not sure. like that's just like a, that's sort of like a big jump, you know? So being able to make it where it's not yeah. putting anybody in an uncomfortable situation. Absolutely. So. You know, I've actually been written about for my podcast and like, Almost everywhere, let's say, from the New York Times, like NBC to Logo. I just mean it purely factually. And I only say that in like a braggy way because the vast majority of those things I've asked people to write about the podcast or to include me. Mm -hmm. You know, in May, I do a massive PR push when I email all these like queer reporters saying, hey, Pride Month's coming up. If you're doing a podcast roundup 
or if you want to, or when I have an amazing interview with like X person that breaks news, like um, Lily Reinhart is the bisexual actress on Riverdale, that CW show. Mm-hmm. We had some like breaking news for that. And so I emailed friends at Perez Hilton at HuffPost at, I'm sure the publicist that they were here, this would be like livid, but like that is how the game works. And so me emailing yeah. my friend at Perez Hilton isn't asking for a favor. It's me giving her a favor. Cause like I've got this like Lily Reinhardt mm-hmm. story and she gets a lot of clicks. That girl has 26 million Instagram followers. And so it's really being strategic in that way too, where not being afraid to like ask people, but the people who didn't cover, like, like it doesn't matter. But, um, like my friend right. at USA Today, I was like, hey, can you guys write on the podcast? And she was like, oh, we're actually doing a podcast pick of the week every week for Pride. No brainer. Done. Like things like that. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And I think, you know, we talked about earlier about like your friend with with Apple and stuff like that. Like when I'm doing these strategic relationships with people, that didn't really involve like coming together with you to create something. It was just like, I'm just going to step on your shoulders to get over to this person. And that's not the same thing. Does that make I sense? agree. That's why I think like the word networking actually has like become outdated a bit because mm. it sounds a little bit conniving. Where yeah. like nowadays it's just like it's just friendships. Yeah. You know, it's about like who I get drunk with, like once a week or once a month. Yeah. You know, that's how I think of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> but actually, I also, mean that. Yeah, and I think that for a lot of people, like I'm all about you know drive and stuff, but also like patience and wisdom. So like, sometimes I have to like wait a little bit because there's going to be some life skills and some wisdom that's going to come in the next six months. They're going to put me that to it'll be the right time for me to have that conversation with such and such person. And I can't speak to somebody else's experience, but I can only speak to my own and how that's been. And understanding like, and if I get honest and I get quiet with myself. Because I, I want to serve and do things in this world and be making wonderful things happen. But if I get quiet, I'm like, wait, no, like there's this, this, and this that I can work on today. Mm. Does that make sense? Like it's on my plate that is tangible that I can do. Absolutely. Like then maybe this shiny object that's over here. Like, no, 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 no. Like have gratitude to what I have been given to work with and to really do the best I can with that. I agree. I mean, if you guys like were like my goal for this year for the podcast for like Talk Out Loud Live is I have 1 million downloads per month, I would tell you, okay, good luck. And I'd like roll my eyes <laughs> just because if people are saying that's not possible, right. yeah. <laughs> unless you're Tim Ferriss, he's an outlier. But I also go back to, I think what you were saying, Anthony, about like being the giver. I had, I'm very close with Eric Marcus, who's the um, host of Making Gay History. We were talking about something I wanted to do in my career. And he was like, well, do you mind if I like give you a piece of advice? And I was like, I've known you for like four or five years. Like I would love your advice. And we talked about it. And then after that, I was like, please don't be like afraid to like tell me things. And yeah. then like last week we had an hour long call just purely to talk about me and my career ambitions and how to get from like point A to point like C and D. And mm. he was like so apprehensive to like offer this advice. And I realized like, oh, you know, it's I, someone like me doesn't know how to ask for help. And then someone like him doesn't know how to offer help. So it's like everyone is just like, it's why like no one calls anymore. It's like, like you didn't call me. Well, you didn't call me a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I know when I've had the opportunity to be of service to help other people, it feels good to be able to give back, like to, to deny somebody else that, that who's, who's worked hard. And I, I had a, we have a family friend who, you know, sold their business recently. And, you know, we were talking about like, as that was sunsetting, he was just like, well, you know, this has been my identity for so long. I'm like, you know what, but you have so much wisdom that if you could volunteer, I mean, he's financially in a good place. I'm like, people, there's a lot of Olympia young people that could really benefit from your, from any lot the stuff that you've done is not necessarily specific to your field alone. And, you know, specifically, I know, like, in the, the, the gay population, 
we lost so many of our elders to AIDS. You know, we have a whole generation of people that is is missing. And so when I find that like that elder who I really gravitate to, I really and if they're open to it, like I I really make a purpose to make sure I get to fully soak up what they're offering to give me mm-hmm. because that is a gift. If that makes any sense, Absolutely. you know, right? You know, and I, that being said, I kind of it's a kind of a good way to segue is, you know, you sought out on this, this this journey that you've been doing now for for a while. And was there anything from this experience that, looking back upon it, you, you didn't realize that this was going to be uh, that you, you were going something from this experience? You're like, wow, I didn't ever expect this to change me or this to come out of this. Well, I think like the biggest surprise I had was about goes back to what we were saying about like connections and like just people. I leave a good impression on people. And like, I was shocked when about like two years into my show, I went to the glad awards and I just kind of like knew a massive percentage of people because I'd either interviewed them or got to know them. And then I was like, joke, my, someone was joking, like, wait, why have you gone like table to table talking to everybody? (laughs) (laughs) And then for me, then that was like somebody interviewed was like, you saw in like their other friend, like you have to be on this podcast. Mm. And so like, I, didn't realize like how much I was like expanding my like quote unquote network during the show. And that has been like a beautiful thing just to be able to go to spaces full of like, you know, people I look up to and to Mm. be able to talk to people. I think Mm. that like communication skills wise too, like it has just transformed my ability to talk to strangers to like go to like any bar. I'm not just saying I I can only talk to like a queer legend. (laughs) Because, like, we've all had experience where someone has nothing to do with you until they know who you are. But, like, I mean, I it is I like talking to people. Uh, I, I think of, like, our, like, personality as, like, we're genetically programmed for certain things, but also our environment can, like, transform us in certain ways as well. And I think life is a um, – in my life, it's been about, like, revealing the parts of my personality that were over, always there, but that, like, maybe I've been like, hidden mm. over from, like, growing up queer in the South. And so it's been really nice to – always know that like this like person I liked was inside of me but then like I did the work to be honest to get to that point where like now other people know he exists too (laughs) I've never heard anyone quite put it that way that's that's a real gift and there's something about when we're able to to be like really who we are because I was so afraid of people when I was younger like not it wasn't that long ago I mean I wasn't I mean (laughs) not even when I was younger but even like in my late 20s like I had so much fear of people and now I, I I mean I'm a bit of an introvert and extrovert but I just, uh, like some of my favorite things is to sit down and talk to people now. And whether it's at like going to the Abbey on a Sunday where I would have been like scared to death. Like if I didn't know, like I would have my circle of people around me. And now I'm just like, I don't know if it's because I've done some work on internalized homophobia or what it is, but now I'm just like, oh, wow. Like that person just kind of sparked my curiosity. I'm going to go talk to that person. And, and I remember like when Anthony and I first started dating again, he's like, what are you doing? Where are you going? I'm like, oh, I'm going to go talk to this person, you know? Well, it kind of breaks my heart because like now, instead of like looking for like someone like you to talk to, if they're alone in the bar, they're like on their phone until someone else comes over. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Like yeah. you're not making eye contact anymore. That's true. It's yeah. true. Everyone's on an app trying to find someone while they're in the bar, which that oh that just perplexes me. Anyway, I'm curious to know, is there anyone who you haven't spoken to that is like on your radar that you really are excited to to talk to? So I mentioned Miss Major, who I talked to this week. I've been wanting to talk to her for like four years. Mm. And so that was just like a huge point for me just personally. But to answer your question specifically, I'm really interested in the people who are queer that we don't include on like lists, the people Mm -hmm. that are never going to be like a pride parade. Mm -hmm. And I think of like 
the older people, like a Barry Manilow, mm-hmm. you know, he's finally out of the closet and he's not doing like queer media interviews. You know, he's such a fucking icon, but like we kind of like worship like a Elton John and we like check it off. You know, yeah. I would love to have like a Barry Manilow queer interview. I'm also fascinated by people like Elizabeth Gilbert. Mm. You know, she uh, writes Eat, Pray, Love. Yes. yes. She writes Eat, Pray, Love. She writes other books, Committed, City of Girls. And then she falls in love with her best friend of years as she's dying. That's like, I, I've never heard Liz Gilbert label her sexuality. Right. Like, I would just love to know, like, has she always dated, like, all, all other genders? Or, like, is this a new thing? Like, how does she think about that? And then to have one of the most successful books of, like, the century has quite a spotlight on you. So then I kind of wonder like how much does that like pressure her or not as well? Yeah. Yeah. She is a, a, I can see definitely um, her Ted talk, honestly, on creative genius changed my life. So yeah. What part specifically? Specifically like how we, um, to anyone who hasn't seen it, please go check it out because I won't do it justice, but specifically like how we, the the artists specifically became the God versus entering into collaboration with the, the genie. Mm-hmm. Um, we made ourselves the genie um, and that creative project. She speaks specifically to what you talked about, like how when she wrote that book, like people asked her like, oh, you're doomed now that you've written the most popular book. Like now what do you do with yourself? And she talks about like how creatives and suicide is so prevalent. And when we started making ourselves yeah. that, that person, that we set ourselves up to carry something that, that no human, one human being can carry in that process. That's interesting. She has that really like a gift for um, like putting words to things like that, that like we think about like abstractly and like, yeah. but she can put it like specific words to it in a way I really appreciate. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, so Jeffrey with uh, the year ahead, is there anything specifically um, people should be on the lookout for um, your, your, uh, your new season uh, or you're, you don't necessarily call them seasons, but you're back out with some wonderful new interviews. Uh, you're doing some people that have done some amazing things in history right now. Is that correct? Yeah, I I was. Um, yeah, I tend to talk to people um, like in order to book them, like queer legends, like Edie Windsor from the Supreme Court case and Larry Kramer. I tend to talk to people, and then a couple months later, like they die. And so I'm trying to break that cycle. Uh, if you want me to kill anybody, let me know. Um, but I'm trying to get the people from history that before they die to be completely morbid. I like talking about death. So like Miss Major, um, Mark Siegel is 70. He's not going to die anytime soon, hopefully. Tracy Africa Norman, this like legendary model mm-hmm. from our history. I'm really interested in people like that. Um, and I'm also, I'm... I've been doing this for five years and I was like, what will keep me doing it for another five? And it's like only talking to people that I want to talk to, to be completely honest. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really focused on people that I'm just jazzed as hell to talk to. That's exciting. And it shows in your work uh, that I've really enjoyed what I've been able to listen to what's come out with your new season. So we really, uh, really so grateful for you taking some time out of your busy schedule to hang out with us today. Yeah, of course. This is fun. One of the biggest takeaways that speaks to me from Jeffrey's story is that if you want something, then go for it. You just never know what's going to happen if you do. I encourage you to follow your curiosity and see where it leads you. To learn more about Jeffrey and get connected to LGBTQ&A, you can visit his profile page on our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk Out Loud. 
If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate us, and share with a friend. You can also follow us on social media at Talk Out Loud Live. If you or someone you know has an inspirational story and a member of the LGBTQIA community, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us on our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. On our website, you can also catch up on past episodes, learn more about our past guests, and browse their profiles. You can also get your official Talk Out Loud gear in our online store and browse our online bookstore curated with our guests' recommended books. Thanks again for listening, and remember, be true, be you, and to talk out loud.